Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts. I am the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Today is Sunday, October 16th. We have our first interview. We'll be doing Sunday interviews going forward. Today we have Jamie Reif, who is the project manager for the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook, written by Craig Reed. Craig and Jamie are military historians and experts. We have an excellent interview lined up. And before we jump into this, if you want to get your hands on a copy of this book, you can find it on Amazon. Just search for the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook. Or you can go to militaryminiaturepress.com. If you go to the end of the podcast, there is a discount code that will work on the website. doesn't work on Amazon. One last thing, no promotional consideration has been given for this interview. We're with Jamie Reif, who together with Craig Reed wrote the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Dave. Jamie, why don't we just jump right on in? What was your motivation for writing this book in the first place? And before you answer that, I had a chance to review a copy of it. Very well done. Very well researched. We are all very impressed with the book. Well, thank you very much. Craig Reed and I, um, Craig's a primary author, are uh, military historians. I've got a little more experience than he does. I've, uh, I've written 11 books. Uh, a, lot of it's, a lot of it's not out in open markets for policy papers. I've done a lot of work with the Navy and the Army over the years. When uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, of course, that was it was all over the news. And Craig and I had a discussion, and we were just appalled about how much historical ignorance there was out there about the invasion, about what was going on, because most people don't know any anything about Eastern European history. Russia, you know, Cold War, Big Bad Russia, Ukraine, what's Ukraine? Nobody knows anything about Ukraine. And uh, we had just come off uh, doing an article for the U.S. Naval uh, Institute Proceedings. It was published in January 2022 on the use of drone warfare in the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict of October-November 2020. That article was really well received because we uh, realized that drone warfare appears to be the game-changing technology of the future. When the Russians invaded Ukraine uh, along four fronts, or axes as we call them, The Ukrainians, over the course of about a week, uh, stopped them cold, and it's through creative use of a small unit, uh, hunter-killer, tank-killing teams, but more importantly, through drone warfare. So that caught our interest coming off that article we had done for the proceedings. So we decided, hey, we're going to pay attention to this, because at the time, we were considering a follow-on article, but we wanted to see, you know, where developments uh, were going and what other conflicts uh, might erupt in the future. Well, here it was. So we started tracking this, and by mid-March, it was obvious that the Russians had fumbled the ball. There's a lot that goes into that. It's probably a different podcast, too. But ultimately, by mid-April, when we decided to do the fact book, okay, one, this is the largest war in Europe since World War II. Two, technology played a role in the much smaller Ukrainian armed forces in bringing the, the Russian juggernaut to a complete halt and literally kicking it out of the northern part of the country. Nobody predicted that on February 24th. So on around April 14th, when the uh, Russian uh, Black Sea uh, flagship Moskva was sunk, we made the decision, hey, 
we need to do something with this. We had planned on doing the drone warfare follow-up article, but let's let's do a, a fact book. Of course, at that point, we thought, okay, the Russians going to come back, steamroll Ukraine, it's going to be over in another six weeks or something. Of course, that didn't happen. But we made the decision in mid-April to do the fact book, one, to educate the public on uh, the history between Ukraine and Russia and their relationship. It goes back a thousand years, as we cover in, in, one, in the first chapter. And two, we want to provide a guide to all the weapons, the vehicles, the aircraft, because that hadn't been done in a while. We wanted to sort of cut through the disinformation and the propaganda that quickly became a feature of this war. It's still going on. In fact, it's exploded over, over the last few months. That's the story about how we made the decision to do this. And ultimately, it became a much bigger book than we originally planned, because we had no idea the war was going to go as long as it did but that's why we covered the first phase from february 24th through april 7th one of the things that we were really impressed with as we're going through your book was the deep attention to detail that you provided on eastern european history the history of ukraine and russia and their evolving relationship and all of the influence that has happened in that part of the world over a thousand year period you had mentioned that a lot of people don't understand or don't know that history. What would you say are three things that you wish people would understand? One, the Slavic world is not monolithic. Uh, there are numerous countries. There are numerous former kingdoms and duchies that really did not come together as countries in the modern sense until after World War One. Ukraine being one of them, Russia being another, Russia being an empire. Two, the conflict between Moscow and Kiev goes all the way back to the, the 10th century uh, when both cities were competing for dominance in, in the Eastern Slavic world. Ultimately, early on, Kiev lost out when the Mongols invaded and sacked the city. Moscow won that struggle, at least in the short term. But here in the, in the last uh, 30 years or so, Kiev has reemerged uh, re as a rival to Moscow's influence in Eastern Europe. The, the relationship between Ukraine, Belarus, and Poland, they have, in this long thousand-year struggle, they have been rivals as well, and sometimes allies, sometimes adversaries, but mostly allies against uh, the Russians and the Russian Empire, going back to up here, the great Catherine the Great in the 18th century. Potential for a much wider conflict is there. It's baked into uh, Putin's uh, rhetoric that he's been using to try to justify the war. I mean, he's thrown out various things. It's changed over the last six months. But ultimately, there are deep-seated reasons why the Russians decided to do what they did. And it's all grounded in the history. And so we wanted to get that out there right up front that, hey, there's a thousand years of baggage that both countries, Ukraine and Russia, are carrying that led us to this moment. Over the weekend, billionaire Elon Musk kind of stepped into the circle in his de-escalation suggestion, which was generally poorly received. But one of the things that he had brought up was the history of the Crimea Peninsula, mm -hmm. saying that Nikita Khrushchev by mistake and that the Crimea Peninsula essentially belongs to Russia. The history behind that, I know, is a lot more complicated than that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the Crimea Peninsula is very strategically located in the Black Sea, and Black Sea is huge. And it's the, it's the focal point between multiple empires in history, the Greeks, the Ottoman uh, Turks, the Russians, Eastern European uh, uh, countries of Romania and Austria-Hungary. So Crimea has always been strategically important. For a, a large part of its 
history of the last thousand years is under the control of the Mongols, the Crimean Tatars. Moving into the 20th century, Crimea was seized, for lack of a better word, by the Soviet Union very early on in the 1920s, just because it was so strategic. And Musk was correct in, in 1954, Nikita Khrushchev, who has Ukrainian connections himself within his own family. He always had a fond spot for Ukraine. He considered it as a gift and basically giving Crimea to Ukraine uh, in exchange for his family connections, some nepotism there, of course, uh, in the Soviet system. Uh, uh, calling it a mistake, it's completely subjective and probably arbitrary because it wasn't a mistake as far as Khrushchev was concerned. He was, you know, he's a pretty heavy hitter in Soviet history. That is, that was actually one of Putin's arguments going back to both his speeches of February 22nd and 24th that Khrushchev made this huge monumental mistake in, in giving away a vital Russian asset, the Crimean Peninsula, which had particularly its base at Sevastopol. It's always been an historic uh, Russian naval base since Catherine the Great in the 1780s. That's when the Russians took control of it for ever so long as part of the Russian Empire. But whether it's a mistake or not, well, I'm not so sure about that. That's the Russian argument for taking it. And of course, the Russians did take it again away from Ukraine in 2014 uh, as punishment for uh, driving uh, Putin's ally, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was then president of Ukraine, into exile. And uh, he was sub subsequently was uh, removed from office by the Ukrainian parliament. And in response to that, Putin orchestrated the seizure of Crimea. That, of course, launched the uh, civil war uh, in the Donbass region. It's subjective. I'm not sure why Musk decided to involve himself in that kind of historical argument, because, again, there's a lot of baggage there. There's a lot of different interpretations. You, you've got to really take a deep dive into Soviet history to sort of understand why Khrushchev did that. It's just a matter of interpretation, I suppose. Let's shift gears for a moment. You had talked about the impact that drone warfare has had. How do you think that this will change other conflicts going forward? And what do you think military planners are taking away from the lessons taught over the last eight months? Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, when we were, tr Craig and I were tracking the drone warfare that uh, was heavily utilized uh, in, in the Azerbaijani and Armenian conflict of uh, November 2020, we recognized from the start that drones are going to be everywhere within the next five to 10 years. They're going to be the main, the main staple of, of, of uh, most first world modern armed forces because one, they're cheap. Two, artificial intelligence is quickly uh, getting to the point in which the drones, I mean, we're getting into Terminator type scenarios here in which drones can actually make decisions of whether to take the shot or not that adds a, a whole new element of lethality to them they're easy they're easy to produce and they're cheap particularly with the u.s military u.s militaries in a lot of ways become risk adverse uh, going back the last 20 years and we started relying more and more on drone technology ourselves particularly in the taking out al-qaeda targets in afghanistan so that's really where it began it's proliferated since, since then it drones remove the risk adverse nature of, of losing uh, human pilots in combat. And you can have a lot more of them. They're easy to replace. Uh, they're also uh, less politically sensitive. If you have an aircraft shot down and a pilot captured, like Francis Gary Powers in a U-2 you know, in, in 1960, a drone can't be held hostage. A case in point, a few weeks ago, the Iranians actually captured a couple of Navy drones in the Persian Gulf. And they got some news coverage, but it's otherwise no big deal because there's no U.S. Navy service people who are involved, just a couple of machines. You multiply these machines by thousands, like the Ukrainians are doing. They're, they're mounting 
hand grenades, small rockets, booby traps, mines. There are a thousand different uses you could do for an individual type drone. And the Ukrainians caught on real fast. In fact, they have a special, what I call a proto-military unit. They had been the IT enthusiast and drone uh, hobbyist who uh, quickly got involved from the first day of the war. And they used their drone knowledge to, to participate in the, in the defense of Kiev. And they were so wildly successful that they, they got military commissions. And they even have their own Facebook page. You could track, I mean, they're pretty open about what they do. So drone warfare is, is, is the ultimate game changer. We're going to see smaller militaries. It's going to require um, uh, technicians and more pilots, but who can operate remotely. And if a drone gets shot down, it can be easily replaced. Uh, they're lethal. We know that they kill tanks. We know they can take out an armored column. We know they can take down other aircraft. The Navy is developing underwater drones uh, for uh, anti-submarine warfare as well as surface co uh, combat. But it's fascinating to watch this technology develop, but unfortunately proliferate throughout the world because it is so easily available. I mean, anybody can go get a commercial drone and strap a hand grenade to it. And that was a point that Craig and, my, and I had made in our uh, U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings article that, hey, drones are so much more versatile than, than having a human pilot that there's no chance that you could put this genie back into the bottle. On the Russia side, we're seeing on their Orlin 10 surveillance drones they're using consumer dslr cameras they're using plastic disposable water bottles for fuel tanks their orlon 30 drones can support laser targeting for their laser artillery shells russian artillery units are complaining there's no more orlan 30 drones left to use those laser shells and russia's had to turn to iran mm -hmm. to get combat drones in the field did the russian ministry of defense just completely dropped the ball on drone technology and why is that russian production capacity lags about 20 years behind the west and maybe 30 years behind the united states and even the chinese they don't have the technology and what technology they, they do have tends to be outsourced like a lot of american technology because you know a lot of the drone companies are in china so the russians being behind and Russian doctrine really hasn't changed since the uh, fall of the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. So even though the U.S. armed forces uh, in, a, in Iraq and Afghanistan demonstrated that drones uh, are particularly, you know, particularly lethal uh, as a combat alternative to using live people, the, the Russians never had to really fight a war in which it was really required until Syria. And that's when they sort of got their first taste of the benefits of drone technology when they went into Syria a few years ago. So they were a little bit late to the game anyway from the start in that the Russians didn't really have any real serious massive wars like the United States did. Yes, they had Georgia and South Ossetia in 2008 and Chechnya before that. But even then, Chechnya was in 1999-2000. So drones really weren't on, on the drawing board at that point. Just their, just their military experience had left them behind. I'm not surprised that they that the drones they did have uh, ran out relatively early because I don't think uh, Vladimir Putin planned for a campaign that would last longer than two or three weeks. I mean, he planned to basically do his own version of shock and awe against Ukraine, do a decapitation strike against Zelensky in Kiev and just take swallow the whole country in three weeks. So he didn't think he needed that many at that point. So the Orlans they had. He lost pretty quickly, particularly as, you know, NATO clandestine uh, assistance started arriving and countermeasures against the Russian drones. The Iranians are, are actually very clever. They, they understand that 
they can't go toe to toe with NATO style forces. And Turkey being a part part of NATO had, does have a clandestine relationship with the Iranians. So in Turkey, uh, along with Israel, there are the two biggest purveyors of drone technology outside the United States and China. So the Iranians caught on really fast that drone technology is an equalizer in the Persian Gulf. And they developed these really great uh, drone technology that the Russians when they went shopping around about three months ago to try to equalize what was going on in Ukraine, they found that the Iranian drones were pretty much equivalent to what the Ukrainians were using. So that's when the first shipments started arriving about a month ago. And now we're seeing, seeing them in combat and they're proving to be effective. That's the long and short how the Russians came to purchase the Iranian technology. And I'm sure countermeasures are being worked. In warfare, you have the next best thing and then a countermeasure appears and then you have to move on and, and keep improving the technology or develop an alternative. We'll be probably seeing seeing the Iranian drones become less effective in the coming weeks. That's my prediction. I'm going to put that out there. You talk about countermeasures. Is this one of the reasons why we're not seeing these massive explosion anymore and high Mars attacks? Because mm-hmm. Russia was forced to adopt from putting their ammunition in massive piles outside in the middle of nowhere and having to move them further back and distribute them more. Well, the Russians have always historically been tied to their railways and their railheads. And they, in Soviet and Russian doctrine, they, they build these enormous ammunition dumps near the railheads. They're easy to find if you've got satellites. In phase two, the Russians pulled back and they relied heavily upon their artillery to keep the Ukrainians at bay so they could solidify their positions in the south and in the Donbass regions, Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. Phase two is all artillery. So they were bringing up these enormous stocks from, from their mothballs. And a lot of these are like 30, 40, 50 year old artillery shells, but you have to move them. Uh, around July 3rd, July 4th, uh, with clandestine NATO assistance and intelligence operations, uh, the Ukrainians, one, they got the HIMAR technology from the United States, 16 of these launchers, which 16 is a minuscule number, but they were enormous in, in, cha- in turning the tables on the Russians. And then two, NATO intelligence starting identifying near these railheads where the ammunition d- depots are. Now, Russians have thousands of artillery pieces, but they're worthless if you don't have the ordinance to shoot through them. So once the HIMARS arrived and started taking out these ammunition dumps, which were relatively close to the front lines so they could feed the Russian guns, they ran out of ammo, had no way to replace them. And so almost overnight in July, Russian uh, artillery attacks diminished all across uh, the front line, which enabled phase three to happen. It was the, and that was the initial uh, uh, Ukrainian counterattack, which happened around uh, Labor Day. Taking out the Russian uh, ammunition uh, depots, that was another game-changing event, Uh, identifying them and then just getting the high Mars on them. And suddenly the Russian guns are just museum pieces at that point. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. You had talked about shock and awe, the opening part of Mm -hmm. the war. One of the things that's jumped out to us was Russia's inability to establish air superiority, let alone air supremacy. Why has Russia failed so miserably at controlling the airspace over Ukraine? 
I have a lot to say about that, actually, because I've actually studied that problem myself. And Russia has always had some very good aircraft military aviation engineers, going back to Mikoyan, Gurevich, Sukhoi. And they, you know, their technology is is less advanced than American technology, but their aircraft have always been solid. What uh, I have seen, and the Institute for the Study of Warfare sort of picked up on this too, is that one, the, Ukra- uh, the Ukrainians developed fairly sophisticated anti-aircraft uh, defense systems going into the second, third weeks of the war. So the Russian aircraft uh, or the Russian air force could not fly with impunity over Ukraine because Ukraine had, had acquired basically the similar anti-aircraft defense systems that the Russians has, as well as NATO uh, uh, based systems like stingers and man pads over Kiev and the major cities and military. The second uh, thing that uh, ISW picked up on was that the Russians don't seem to have a large stockpile of guided munitions for the aircraft. And they use those mostly in the, within the first three weeks of the war. So they have not been able to replenish those stocks of missiles and bombs, particularly pre- precision-guided munitions. They've had to resort to uh, dumb bombs, 40, 50, 60-year-old dumb bombs, which is why we're getting a lot of collateral damage. It, or it seems to be indiscriminate, you know, bombs hitting apartment buildings. Well, it's because they're not pre- precision-guided. The dumb bombs are what they are. They just land wherever a pilot, you know, releases them. Let's talk a little bit about the book. We've actually uh, mm-hmm. picked your brain, and I really appreciate that. Um, but we certainly want to talk about your book, The Russian-Ukraine War Factbook, that you did with Craig Reed, who is the primary author of that. One of the things we can't share on the podcast is how visually beautiful the book is, and the maps, the artwork, the photographs, everything that is in there is one of the things that I was impressed with. It contained a depth of knowledge in the written narrative but there is a tremendous amount of visual information that's also provided in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a great team. Uh, Craig, of course, is the primary author. I'm the project manager and the coordinator. And uh, Kevin Opp is our designer. He's responsible for how gorgeous the book looks uh, in the context that we're actually talking about war and such. But yeah, Kevin Kevin is, is an art, a true artist. And he made it look like it does. His name's Kevin Opp. He's based in Buffalo, New York. He's awesome. Uh, our map maker is uh, uh, Rocio Espin. And she's a, a professional cartographer. She's actually based in Spain. I've, I've worked with them for a couple of years now, and they're just an outstanding team. So we all came together on this when it came time to put it together. Uh, and we knew that we wanted something to catch the eye because we didn't want to put something out, you know, that was pretty drab or wouldn't capture interest. And like it or not, when you're marketing a book, you know, it has to be visual. So we needed something that would stand out and capture people's attention. The imagery inside I know our audience can't see it since this is a podcast, but I'm a collector of books. I have a fairly enormous library of reference works on weapons technology going back to when I was a high school student in the 1980s. Uh, if, uh, I have it here in my bookshelves behind me. So I had a pretty reference, uh, handy reference guide for the various weapon systems, the tanks and the aircraft and the vehicles uh, moving forward. And plus, I've collected as, as a lot of images, uh, public domain images over the years uh, in my own personal library, because that, that's my field, military history, uh, naval. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an inveterate collector of phot- photography and such, high quality and such. So I have my own library that we were able to draw from. Uh, and plus, uh, we also uh, 
benefited from social media because both the Russian government's Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense are very proud uh, of their weapon systems. And uh, if you visit their uh, various social media feeds, they're always showcasing them. And it's all we don't have to worry about. Uh, we do respect intellectual property, but uh, when you're dealing with a government, that's all public domain and such. So we were able to draw from that to get some really high quality imagery for our book. And as I said earlier, our team put it all together and, and really made it visually appealing for our readers. Drawing the line that you did on April 8th makes a lot of sense uh, mm-hmm. because that really is when phase one of the war ends. Phase two starts on April 18th. Russia starts making a big push south towards Izum. That reached its apex around June. And of course, uh, our listeners know the rest of the history because they listen to our our podcast. Yeah. My question to you is, is there going to be a part two? Answer is yes. And our thinking on that has changed. Things started moving so fast that we couldn't keep up with it. Plan on start working on phase two around Labor Day. But then once the Ukrainian counterattack happened, that completely changed our plan. So right now our plan is, is more or less to wait and see what happens now. Apparently the Ukrainians, we don't know for sure who attacked uh, the Kerch uh, bridge uh, connecting Russia and Crimea, but take a pretty good guess, as well as the Russian response with the missile strikes, 84 missiles striking various cities inside Ukraine and do, do, doing a lot, a lot of collateral damage, kill, killing some civilians. The war feels like it, it's starting another phase, if not reaching a climax, and that things are going to happen. So we've made a strategic decision that volume two will probably be a larger book and encompass all the phases since phase one, rather than taking the supplement approach. We'll probably just do a second volume that's probably a little bit bigger. Uh, since we're just dealing really with two axes instead of four now, it'll be easier for us to handle uh, uh, topically. So that's the plan right now, sort of wait and see to see how the war progresses. And then we'll make a decision once negotiations, negotiations start or Rus- Russians pull back or Putin is overthrown or Z- Zelensky flees the country. We just got to wait and see. But there will be a volume two and it'll probably be a little more comprehensive than than the, the uh, phase one book. As a war historian, I'm going to ask you a selfish question. Sure. History has shown that over 1,500 years, the borders of modern Ukraine uh, is where invading militaries go to die in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing Russia preparing to do this mass mobilization where a lot of these troops are going to be arriving in November and December. What do you think is going to happen? And I realize that when it comes to war, predictions are suckers bets so i'm putting you on the spot Uh, it's going to be a debacle for the russians because these these mobilized conscripts or mobilized middle-aged men who might have served in the soviet army in 1990 or whatever they're already arriving in ukraine and are either being killed or surrendering. I've seen reports of mass surrenders of some of these men who who wanted no part of this to begin with. Uh, I also saw another report. Uh, I think there's, uh, and the sources are reputable, that uh, 1.5 million winners Russian Russian winter uniforms suddenly disappeared in the system. Nobody knows what happened to them. They probably went on the black market and are now in military surplus stores. So they have no way of, of providing proper winter uh, clothing to these mobilized servicemen. They're pulling uh, out of Central Asia and Siberia uh, and, and the Caucasus. So the Russians are going to have a hard time supporting and protecting 
these newly mobilized service people because one, well, there's, there's, there's only limited roads going into Ukraine. And you're right, Ukraine is the graveyard of invading armies. And you, you could trace that back to uh, King Charles XII of Sweden when he fought Peter the Great. It's, it, it, it reeks of a last gasp of the Russian armed forces to try to throw some warm bodies into depleted battalion tactical groups and try to hold what they've got. You know, Putin held this, uh, these referendums, which were a sham, to try to formally and legally, at least under Russian law, to annex uh, these four territories. He's trying to fill those territories of warm bodies uh, in order to hold what he's got. In the meantime, he's lashing out with these missile attacks because the Ukrainians or someone affiliated with Ukraine took out the Kerch Bridge. So I don't see this ending well at all for the Russians, and especially for uh, the, the servicemen uh, who were one-year conscripts. They've been out of the military for 20 years, and suddenly they're recalled to service as partially mobilized with no training, no uh, no real leadership. They're just warm bodies being thrown being thrown in, in, into these territories in an attempt to try to try to hold on to them. But I, I don't see the Russians being able to do that, particularly the winter, because the Ukrainians fighting for their own country. They know how to fight in the winter in their own country. The Russians, yes, historically, Russians do well in winter. But in this case, the morale is shot. Training's bad. There's no motivation for them to stay. So I would not be surprised to see that the Russian units in in, in those four territories just start dissolving altogether as these these men either desert, go home, or just surrender to the Ukrainians. So we're going to be re- reaching a climax within the next month or two, I think, as 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 the cold weather sets in in Ukraine. Jamie, if people wanted to get a copy of the book, how do they get their hands on the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook? Uh, we have uh, three outlets. Uh, one's Amazon. Just do a uh, search for Russia-Ukraine War Factbook, and up it pops. Uh, you can buy it directly from our website, militaryminiaturepress.com. And we're also working with Casemate uh, distributors uh, based in the UK, and they're going to be uh, distributing uh, hard copies of the book at uh, trade shows, conventions, and uh, wargaming uh, uh, events, uh, such as Historicon uh, moving into uh, next year. So hard copies will be available at uh, various venues, uh, but the easiest way is just go to uh, either Amazon or to our website, militaryminiaturepress.com, and just order from there. It's a great great deal. I know some of our listeners right now are going, wait, wait, wait. He didn't say the URL twice. What was that URL again? It's okay. If you go to the description, the URL for militaryminiaturespress.com is in the description on most of the sites that we host on. There's some sites that don't parse the entire description. If that's the case for the site that you're listening to this podcast through, you can always go to RussiaUkraineWarPodcast.com and you can find the link for this episode. And when you go there, the link to the website will also be found there. Um, Question also for you, Jamie, on Amazon, soft cover and digital copy or soft cover only? Uh, soft cover only. We actually ran into a technological issue of Amazon in trying to uh, uh, do a transfer to the Kindle. It turns out Kindle is based more for fiction type books and is not conducive at all to heav- heavily illustrated books with maps and large high resolution photos like ours. So we just could not techno- technologically make it work on Amazon. So, but if you want the electronic version, it's certainly available at our website, militaryminiaturepress.com. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know this was very informative for me, and I really enjoyed our 
conversation. We've been talking with Jamie Reif, who is worked with Craig Reed. Craig Reed is the principal author. Jamie was the project manager behind the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook. Absolutely outstanding piece of literature. I've had a chance to get a copy and read this in advance before this interview. One of the things that I was really impressed with was the amount of background and historical information that was provided. This is not just a book about combat activity from February 24 to April 8th. And as Jamie said, they are working on dot two. However, mm -hmm. they want to see where everything goes over the next few months. Jamie, once again, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Dave. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamie Reif as much as I did. If you want to get your hands on a copy of the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook, I have good news for our listeners. Jamie has been generous enough to provide a 10% discount just for our listeners. If you go to his website, militaryminiaturepress.com, you can go ahead and use the code PODCAST starting on Monday the 17th. That code will be good for a week and you will get a 10% discount on the soft copy book or the digital copy of the book. Just a reminder, that code will not work on Amazon. My name is David Obeltz. Thank you again for joining us today. And as I always like to close with, be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.